busy as we want to be, as much as we scurry around trying to figure out how to rule our own little kingdoms, that often in your word, you, you call us first to just stop. Because to stop means to admit we don't have control, but that you do. So still our hearts and minds now as we prepare to hear from your word tonight. As we see the beginning of the end uh, unveiled for us, may you give us confidence and boldness. No matter what we might face in this life, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'll go ahead and take a seat, gang. Good to have you here tonight at Epiphany as we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Subtitled, of course, Things Get Weird. And indeed, they they do get weird. Uh, Maybe for the first time, maybe not the first time, but definitely tonight, you're going to hear some things that are unsettling for sure. And hopefully, by God's grace, I can try to explain what some of these things actually mean. Uh, When I was a teenager, I ditched school a lot. Uh, I was pretty good at it. Uh, Now, I'd love to tell you that when I did ditch school, I actually did something cool or adventurous or, you know, exciting with my time that me and my friends would spend together instead of in class. And sure, every once in a while, you know, because I grew up in California, we'd we'd take a trip to the beach or we'd take a trip to the mountains. You know, you could do that. It wasn't too far from where I grew up. Uh, But the truth is, if you want to know the truth, most days, because we were broke and we didn't have much money, what we'd end up doing a lot of the time is going to my friend Jimmy's house and watching old reruns on the game show network. Sad, sad state of affairs. Now, I mean, I don't, re- I don't regret watching the games whenever. I don't even know if it's still around today for that matter. But, yeah, that's what we do because, you know, you're broken. You don't have anything to do. You can't go anywhere. can't get food. So, all right, let's go watch TV. It's still better than being in class. At least that's what we thought. So, uh, we'd watch old reruns of The Price is Right or Family Feud because it was just constantly running on that program. There was a show called Pressure Luck that I really liked in particular. Uh, and one of my favorite shows to watch was a show called Let's Make a Deal, which I think it's, I think there's a revamped version today. I haven't uh, watched it. I don't spend much time watching game shows these days. But the premise of the show was really pretty simple. I'm sure it's still the same today. The contestant would be brought up on stage where there would be three large doors, and behind one of the doors would be some lavish prize worth thousands and thousands of dollars, whereas Usually, the other two doors would have something you know, kind of sad and pitiful. Not necessarily terrible, but nothing in comparison to the big prize. And so, the contestant would be asked to choose a door to determine what prize they would win. And uh, you can always see the look of great anticipation and nerves on the guest's face as they waited for their door to reveal, well, to some extent, their future whether they were going to walk out with thousands more dollars in cash and prizes or whether they were going to walk out with a new microwave oven. Um, So, anticipation is all about what that game show is about. Uh, Last time we gathered 
here around Revelation, which is a couple weeks ago because I was gone and then last week was Reformation Sunday and I wanted to talk about the Reformation. Last time we gathered around this and we concluded our time at the end of chapter 5 looking into really what could be called a heavenly drama. We saw God being worshipped as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth in control of all things. We saw how he employs the various facets of his creation to oversee different spheres of earthly life. Most importantly, we came across seven sealed scrolls on the right hand of God, symbolizing God's revelation of what is going to come and how he is going to bring an end to this world of corruption and sadness in sin. And then, of course, we saw the worthiness of Jesus Christ alone able to open up those scrolls. So tonight, as we enter chapter 6, the anticipation in the kingdom of God that has been through the roof is about to be relieved as they and we will begin to see these scrolls unsealed. And what they reveal is the means by which God will bring judgment against his enemies. The first thing we learn about God's process is found in the opening of the first four seals. And with the breaking of each seal, we see revealed for us four horsemen that are sent out into the world. Now this is, of course, symbolic. It's figurative because this is actually a reference to the prophecy of Zechariah where he reports seeing the same kind of thing. But the idea behind it is these horsemen are sent out into the world by God to accomplish something on behalf of God. What is God doing through each of these horsemen that are, uh, that are unleashed as each seal is broken? That's the question we're asking. So, first of all, we pick it up at verse 1. And we find out that with the first horseman, God is patrolling his world by raising up and taking down nations. Raising up and taking down nations. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, there is some symbolic significance to this first horse, and specifically the weapon his rider is said to have carried that we learn from history. At the time that Revelation was written toward the end of the first century, Rome, of course, was the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. Everywhere they went, they conquered. It seemed to the rest of the world at that time that they were, frankly, unbeatable. However, to the east of their empire was a nation known as the Parthians that gave them all sorts of trouble. They couldn't seem to conquer the Parthians. And particularly what gave Rome trouble with the Parthians was the fact that they used bows and arrow, bow and arrows in battle, riding white horses. So the picture of the white horseman carrying a bow with a crown would have undoubtedly suggested to the people living within Rome's empire, especially the readers at that time, that even they were not immune from being conquered themselves. So we see right at the outset 
that the scrolls, on the one hand, reveal immediate events that could take place anytime, but also a sense in which they reveal ongoing events all throughout world history. Indeed, Jesus tells his disciples clearly in the passage that was read from Luke earlier tonight, in chapter 21, that before the end, it will still very much be the case that God will raise up nations and empires for a time, but then allow them to be conquered or taken over by another. So as a point of application, I can't help but think of how unconquerable the United States has seen throughout my lifetime. I was too small to remember really, even though the Cold War was going on when I was a kid, I just wasn't, it wasn't the same kind of in-your-face life as it was for my father who can remember, you know, drills going off in the school and bomb shelters and having to get in there just as a drill to prepare for a potential nuclear attack. I didn't have that. And so my whole life, it just seemed like, man, the United States is absolutely unbeatable. The weaponry, the wealth, the technology we possess here can easily make us feel very secure about our standing. But if there's anything we learn from texts like this, and for that matter, all of human history, it is that no empire, no matter how strong, is invincible. We should remain humble and aware, no matter what our situation is, no one is unconquerable. Let's move on to the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This could allude to internal or civil war taking place as a result of what happens with the white horse. As people begin to feel insecure due to the potential of being conquered, this leads to division and strife in their midst. What does this lead to then? Well, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, a denarius was about a day's wage. This would be about 800% inflation for the time just to buy a bag of bread. Basically, you were working for a loaf. That's the translation there. So the churches in Asia Minor that John has delivered letters to in the first three chapters, they were known for having an abundance of olive oil and wine. What they did not have was wheat and barley, the very staples of human existence. They didn't have bread. To get those things, they needed to be imported from Egypt and what is known today as, as modern Ukraine. But because of wars and rumors of wars, it is harder and harder to import these essential items. And what does this scarcity lead to? Well, unbelievable and, frankly, unaffordable inflation. And thus we read, verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And 
I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Hades is another name for the, for the grave, or, or the place of the dead. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Boy, cheery passage tonight, eh? Not too much fun to report to you. And yet, what we're reading here, the, the word the, the pale horse... In English, it actually doesn't convey what it's trying to say. It's actually better understood to be green horse, but the translators knew that if you read green horse, you'd picture like a dark green, sort of strange alien looking horse. That's not what it said. It's more like a pale green, sickly horse. That's the idea behind pale. It's this ashen green, sickly horse that signifies and symbolizes the pestilence that it brings. Yes, I know, it's not cheery. Yes, I know, it's strange. You see, all we're hearing is what we could watch on the news on any given day. Nation rising against nation, which leads to bloodshed and internal strife, which leads to scarcity, which eventually leads to famine, pestilence, and death, even by wild beasts of the earth. Indeed, in his book, Rats, Lice, and History, the author Hans Zinsler notes, again and again, the forward march of Roman power and world organization was interrupted by the only force against which political genius and military valor were utterly helpless, namely epidemic disease. And when that came, as though carried by storm clouds, all other things gave way and men crouched in terror abandoning all their quarrels, undertakings, and ambitions until the tempest had blown over. Indeed, in 165 AD, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, you might be familiar with that name, a devastating epidemic, maybe the first appearance of smallpox in the West, swept through the Roman Empire for 15 years, killing an estimated one-fourth to one-third of the entire Roman population. This is the inevitable consequence mankind faces as a result of being in a fallen world. We kill and are killed. We starve and inflict starvation. We get sick and inflict sickness and on and on it goes. So thus, thus far, through the opening of the first four seals, we have seen what events look like on earth throughout history as people are patrolled and ruled over by one conqueror after another. But when we come to our fifth seal, we suddenly see things from the perspective of God's people. And there we learn that through all of this, God is using the events of the world to ultimately save sinners, and vindicate his people. Listen to verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the place where sacrifices to God, of course, were made in the temple. What does he see under the altar? The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. 
They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Does this lament from these martyrs seem strange to you? Here they are asking for God to judge and avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth. But I thought Jesus said we were to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, to hope that they be brought to repentance. How do we reconcile such discrepancies? Well, I think these martyrs are ultimately expressing not necessarily a desire to have blood on specific individuals or justice fall on specific individuals. But I think their request is showing a desire that the whole system that dominates the whole earth, which has just been revealed in the first four seals, be done away with. These Christians are looking for this sin-stained, blood-soaked world to finally be brought to an end. So, for example, there have been plenty of times in my life where I found myself saying, Lord Jesus, come now. Now, I'm not saying by that I want to see bloodshed and I want to see people die. When I ask for him to come now, what I mean is I, I, I want this world to be made new and good again. And that's what these martyrs, these Christians, desire more than anything. And what is God's answer to their requests? Verse 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God's answer to their request is to robe them in white and to call them to rest a little longer. The white robe is clearly a reminder to them of the righteousness they have been gifted in and through the work of Jesus Christ. So there's a part of God's answer that could actually be read like this. Yes, I know you want everything to be fixed, but remember before you were gifted in by the righteousness of my son, you were just as much a part of the world system as everyone else down there. This is why I think he continues by saying, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, God's response to the church who is stuck with dealing with the effects of living in a world ruled by war and chaos and strife and murder throughout is remember what I did for you in Christ and rest because I still have more people just like you to bring into my kingdom. When that number is complete, church, then and only then will I bring an end to this world as we know it. Indeed, lately there has been a very high-profile example of God working to bring repentance to those deemed unlikely. That God still is indeed in the business of saving sinners. 
sure most of you know that Kanye West released his latest album on Friday called Jesus is King. Before this, he had been holding what he called Sunday services all over the country to sold out crowds in which the music basically sounded like music you'd hear at a church service. He even had preachers come out and give gospel presentations at these events for like 15, 20 minutes, and they were the real, real deal. It was the real message. But of course, there were those scolds in the church who greeted this sudden turn from Kanye with lots and lots of skepticism. Lots of side eyes. Many wondered if it was really real or just for show. Well, this week he was interviewed on Jimmy Kimmel, and here's what he said. Quote, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Kimmel responded, would you consider yourself a Christian artist? And Kanye's answer was better than most answers I've heard. I'm a Christian everything, he said. Indeed, the end hasn't come, folks, because God's got some saving to do. As 2 Peter 3 tells us, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Yes, God is going to bring things to an end. It's true. But the good news for us and for you is that he is not willing that any should perish, and so he has not brought an end just yet. However, when he does, he will end it swiftly. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth And the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Yes, this is the end, Peter. And Jesus had talked about in other places in the New Testament. The cosmic force of the judgment of God is destroying everything. And soon in chapter 8, fire will fall from the sky with no chance to escape. And the final question that is asked by those cowering is, Who can stand? Naturally, in and of ourselves, the answer is nobody. Every one of us would be and should be facing this wrath that's coming. But thanks be to God, there are those who will stand 
and pass the bar of God's judgment. They are the ones who have taken upon themselves the robe of Christ's righteousness. And the good news for you and I and all people tonight is that God's robe of righteousness is still being placed upon sinners and is free for the taking now. The good news for you is that he has a robe perfectly fitted for you, decked out in all the righteousness and accomplishments of his son on your behalf. And that is what will cause you to stand no matter what tribulations and trials this world may see. Amen.